everybody. Welcome to the Porn Free Millennial Podcast. I'm your host, Matt. Really excited today. Uh, we have Professor Gregory Boris on, and we're going to pick his brain about porn and culture and society. Uh, Professor Boris and I met over X, which formerly known as Twitter, but we were on a Spaces where it's kind of, a, he was a co-host and uh, of this space and was talking about truth. And Professor Boris, he is a professor of philosophy and English at the University of Arkansas at Monticello, sorry, and also has his PhD in English from Louisiana State University, Baton Rouge. And uh, I was listening to the spaces. It was also hosted, I want to give a shout out to uh, Critically Drinking and Thinking, I believe that's his X handle. Doc, as we like to, to know him, a uh, great dude. Him and uh, Dr. Boris were co-hosting the space on truth. Uh, and Dr. Boris was going into just uh, Western society, how it kind of developed, uh, and giving us a history lesson, basically, and like where truth kind of came from. And uh, uh, the nerd in me started to come out, and I started to talk to Dr. Boris and ask him questions and kind of felt like I was back in uh, college again. And uh, at the end of the conversation, I asked Dr. Boris here uh, if he'd be interested in doing an interview and, and digging a little bit into porn and, you know, kind of where it started in society, like an ancient society, where it's gone throughout history and uh, kind of like where it started to really accelerate in a different way, you know, with film, uh, with uh, our smartphones. So, uh, Dr. Boris, thank you so much. We're going to pick your brain today, so incredibly excited to have you on, uh, but I'm going to hand it over to you to, to give us a little bit of a, a history lesson here on, on culture and society uh, with, with porn uh, being a part of it. So I'm going to go ahead and hand it off to you. Thanks for being on today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. And, um, for your audience, a little bit more about my bio. Um, I did do my PhD in in Baton Rouge. Before that, I got a master's and a bachelor's degree at the University of Dallas, um, which is a classical liberal arts um, Catholic school. I'm Catholic. And um, background has served me really, really well. So that, so that your, your viewers know, your listeners know, your audience knows, um, I do teach philosophy and English. Um, I'm a generalist. I also teach film. And uh, I really got that background from the University of Dallas, and a lot of my insights, if you can call them that, come from both of those kinds of uh, educations that I got. Um, I've been teaching for a long time and very interested in all of these, uh, these topics. Um, I wouldn't say I'm an expert in pornography for certain, um, but I think that parallel to that conversation is a a contemplation of what our regard for um, beauty has been. Uh, and so one of the things that I, I wanted to start with today was, you know, images of, of human sexuality have been with us since prehistoric times. Uh, but interestingly, in every culture where we find them in prehistory, uh, they are um, found, they're founded in religious iconography. And they're not treated any differently uh, in those cultures than any other kind of religious um, image. Uh, it's not until later that there, there seems to be a shift, and I can't pin down why the shift happens when it does, uh, but I will say this. Uh, 
um, the ancient Greeks started depicting sexual acts that were clearly not religious, not part of any religious cult. And then uh, your your uh, audience probably familiar with uh, Vesuvius and the explosion that that landed on top of Pompeii. Mm-hmm. And in the mid 19th century, Pompeii was discovered and excavated, and the Victorians of the time were shocked um, to discover the salacious uh, pornographic images that were painted on walls in certain buildings. And I've I've actually been to Pompeii and I've been in one of these rooms, and um, they're not only salacious; some of them are kind of comic uh, because they're so exaggerated. Mm-hmm. But what happened as a result of that is that these images were sort of stored away in a museum, I believe in Scotland, <coughs> for a long time, excuse me, um, and only experts were allowed to view them because the sort of Victorian attitudes towards sex were, that happens behind closed doors. It's not to be depicted. Uh, the word pornography enters into the English language about this time, and it is at first a reference to writings about prostitution, and then soon enough uh, becomes a a word in the law uh, in Europe and in you know later in the United States about visual depictions. Um, all of these are are understood to be obscene. And I want you the shift that that we're we're living in the world that's the result of is a very interesting one. Um, I'd point out to you, for instance, obscene is a theater word. It's a drama word, and what it means is that whatever is being described or depicted on stage, there are certain things that are never depicted on stage. And the Christian sensibility about this, like in Shakespeare's time, is that you never depict sacrament on stage. Hmm. So you would never, Shakespeare would never write a scene where somebody was going to confession with a priest. He would gotcha. never write a scene, He, if you guys have noticed, if you know Shakespeare, there's no scene in any Shakespeare comedy or tragedy of a wedding. That's always obscene. That's off stage. That's what that okay. means. Okay. So the word obscenity is is actually a word that is underpinned by the idea of taboo. And most people don't realize, but taboo means sacred. Huh. So even in the yeah. ancient world, a taboo relationship is one that is obscene. It's not to be seen. It's private. Do you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and to violate that, that's why we use the word actually almost as the opposite of what of what they originally meant. Obscenity and taboo mean taboo means forbidden. No, taboo actually means sacred. But because of the violation of the taboo and its routine violation, those words have come to be used to mean. Does that make sense to you? Totally. Totally. So. So. That 19th century shift starts to happen. The invention of the camera happens late in the 19th century. Then we begin to get more um, uh, ubiquitous uh, depictions of human sexuality, um, which will come to be associated with pornography. And it all accelerates uh, in the 20th century. Um, But at the same time, Uh, and if you look at depictions of females Gregory, from Gregory, yeah, yes, we don't have to cut that. I think you froze for a second. Might be up. Oh, okay. Uh, 
try rewinding. I think you were saying uh, things start to get ubiquitous uh, when cameras start to come out. And then I think you were going and then it, I think it was me. Okay. The connection kind of froze up for a second. Sorry about that. All right. So out of, out of the, the mid, you know, 19th century and our, our sort of um, cultural Victorianism, we have we have an explosion of technology, right? It's it's still you know the end of the industrial revolution. Uh, the world is changing a lot. The invention of the camera accelerates the uh, mechanical, and I think it's important to call it mechanical, uh, the mechanical reproduction of the human image in photographs, right? right. And this will lead to to more and more uh, available. You know, the early depictions of of pornography were were things that that photographers took in secret and then passed around you know what i mean they weren't sold uh they were clearly in the united states a violation of the law um and uh but they still they still were around um there's a very interesting book and and this will go to the second half maybe of our preview of our conversation but there's a very interesting book by a by a scholar named walter benjamin um in which it's called a um Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproducibility. And the question he asks is, do we really experience art like music in the age of mechanical reproducibility? And what he means by that is that if, if an artist goes into a studio and does a session, right, and it's recorded, and then we hear that, that recording, it used to be that that's what artists did, right? But it's not the way music is, is made anymore. The way music is made now is in parts. And then it gets put together in a computer. And so in a sense, and film is like this too, uh, you never see the actual performance of an actor in a film because mm -hmm. it's all done out of order, multiple takes. The director is the one that selects which takes are going to go together to make a scene. So you see a performance that doesn't exist except on film, which I think is a very interesting notion. So I kind of want to pin that, okay? Um, the reason Benjamin was asking the question was back when, what, back when you know, Johann Bach was still alive, if, if, if there was an announcement that Bach was going to be performing his own works in Vienna three nights in a row, everybody in Vienna that could afford it went all three nights. Because each of the live performances would be slightly different and would be a unique experience. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. So he asked that question in an age where everything is mechanically reproduced and it's perfect every time. The way I put it when I first read the book was, "Oh, do we really know what Spears' voice actually sounds like? Have we yeah. ever heard it?" Right. Do you see what I mean? Even if I we guess go unless you went to a live, live concert. Oh, go ahead. Right. No, no, no. But like I, I've been to live concerts where I discovered that live and, and this was in the transitional period in the 1980s and the early 90s, live performance sounded nothing like the recordings. Right. The only artist I ever saw live that sounded like his recordings was James Taylor. Everybody else sound far worse. And then they I will, started. I will say that, the... I'll say that uh, I saw Peter Gabriel recently mm -hmm. and he, he was pretty dang good. Right. But, uh, um, and people. I believe that I'm a big Peter Gabriel fan. Oh, yeah. OK. Cool. Um, oh, absolutely. but um, I, I do think there there are, you know, exceptions to the rule. But like right. I've seen recorded 
Madonna's live performances when she was still singing. And then I've seen the ones later and clearly her voice is being mechanically manipulated in, in real time. Sure. Um, and so it makes you wonder about people like uh, Lady Gaga and I'm not denigrating anybody. I'm just saying the technology's effect, but right. it, it, it has accelerated a kind of perversion of our relationship with all of those, those things. So I think that's really, really important. Um, so if you go back to depictions of the female nude from Victorian times, people generally will look at them and say, well, wow, they're really ample, you know? Right. Sure. Compared to, compared to what, what our standards in the late 20th century, early 21st century are until quite recently. And now they're, they're sort of widening out to everything. Um, and in a, in an essay that was published in the 1980s, um, that I read when I was still at the University of Dallas, it was called Fat in the Female Body. It pointed out that the, that the shift in female body aesthetics coincided with the discovery and the identification of the lipid in medicine in, as the carrier of fat in the, in the human body. And once the lipid was named, fat became strangely an enemy to the human body Okay. And if you know anything about how the human body works, the first kind of energy that we burn is through sugar, right, and carbs. And then the vast majority of the energy that we burn in the, in the human form is fat. The last kind that we burn is protein, right? And so once the lipid was, was identified, fat became the enemy. And all of a sudden you begin to see a, a, a shift in our body aesthetics when it comes to female beauty. Uh, they go from ample right. to the Barbie, you know, the Barbie look, which Hollywood promotes, right? From the from the not really the 40s, but once we get into the 50, 50s, the books and blondes with the small waist, the ample hips, they still have ample hips, right. and that persists until the late 60s, and then we get the sexual revolution, right? And um, our aesthetic for the female form changes again. And uh, there's an appearance, it's kind of a watershed moment, and I'm still leaning on fat in the female body, where, where the superstar model for a brief period is a, is a woman that's called Twiggy. And she's rail thin. Um, and interestingly, what the, the essayist in, that, in fat in the female body points out is that the explosion of anorexia that happens in the 80s is as a di direct result um, mm -hmm. of this shift. Um, and I think it, 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 it explains a lot about what happened in our culture. Um, it's interesting because, you know, changes in technology change the way that we see the world, change the way that we relate to the world. Um, and I think the growth and explosion of pornography as a result of, of an explosion in technology in the second half of the 20th century, something you need to touch upon, I'm sure, um, explains... Uh, a lot of what, what we've seen. Um, so that's sort of my opening salvo, and I want to turn it back to you to ask questions based on what I said so I can amplify if you want me to. Yeah, uh, absolutely fantastic. I, I think, um, and, and maybe like you can kind of give a little bit of uh, your take on like with film and stuff too, because uh, I know we we're kind of talking about photography with like the camera and everything, but uh, maybe just like I think we've talked about this a little bit when we were prepping, but uh, 
maybe just how pornography kind of started like with the film industry uh seems like that probably started to go on probably after the 60s i'm guessing or I, I think before that even i mean if i'm if i'm to kind of go back into my history book in my head they used to have like theaters where people would go and watch these films um that kind of thing and then it started to turn into like vhs's then it started to turn into dvds then yeah. the internet came along so maybe if you wanted to touch on that and i, I think this is helpful just for listeners it, it, it kind of helps like you can kind of see like the journey this has taken um like through first you're kind of saying like like written language and then you have images that are creative and then you have like paintings and then it just keeps as you're kind of talking about i like, guess as, as technologies grows this also latches on this this um, specter of porn this this whatever you want to call it has like latched on to these um technological advancements and we'll yeah. get to it later in our conversation like where it's at now uh but maybe if you want to go into it because i know that you uh are a film buff you're uh you know, really, uh, that's, I think, some of the stuff you teach as well, right? Um, some of the classes yes. go into film. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And I've, I've taught, film, you know, the development history of film. And when you study that, you'll notice, you know, I mentioned before the invention of the camera. And right. uh, our experience of the first moving pictures was, I think, the first, very first two of uh, images that Edison produced. And it might not be Edison specifically, but one of them is a, of a running horse. Okay. And, yeah, and the other the other one is of a nude man broad jumping. Huh. Just he's standing there and then he much. he jumps like five feet, right? Okay. Why they decided to make him nude, I don't know. You know what I mean? But it's not meant to be pornographic, but it's one of the earliest moving images. And people's experiences have you ever heard of a penny arcade? Yeah, I have. Okay. So moving images were not movies or anything like that. That came a little bit later. They were just like um, these fascinating sort of people would pick a subject and they would do a short film. And then they would, there were these arcades and you can go in and put a penny in and stick your face in the viewer and, and crank the crank. <laughs> you literally <laughs> had to mechanically crank it and okay. the, the image would move. And people were just sort of gobsmacked by it. Like, wow, you know what I mean? Um, and this relates to the way that we, understand and misunderstand technology like for instance a lot of people are under the impression that galileo invented the telescope he did not the telescope was invented in amsterdam um you know some 50 40 40 years before galileo right but it wasn't understood to be a scientific tool it was a toy and galileo got his hands on one of these and realized wait a minute this would be a fantastic tool i'll take it to my lens maker a guy that I know that makes lenses for glasses and see if he can make one that's really, really good. That's where the first telescope comes from. But Galileo didn't have the idea for it. It was already out there, but it was a child's toy. So it's interesting how we don't realize what technology is going to become in the future until we do. Um, And so it's not like, you know, the wheel I think was invented like as a tool that for that purpose. Right. Right. A lot of the technology that we have surrounding us now, I, I, I always look at, especially the ones in our time, and I think to myself, and be careful what you wish for. What's this going to turn into? Sure. So like, for instance, when the Wii came out, you know what the Wii is, right? Yeah, I remember that. The game console Wii. 
we, right? we bowl and I remember I heard about it out I was here in, in Arkansas when I first heard about it and I asked my students one day in class in film class uh, so we were in the auditorium and I was like what is this we that you're talking about and they explained it to me and my first response to them was okay get ready for we porn because that's next sure and sure as shooting I was right it didn't come in that form but you know what I mean yeah um, so uh, so going back to the film thing right so we, we start to have this, first of all, we inherit from the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, film is starting to develop, and we inherit in the West a Victorian attitude about what is to be shown and what can't be shown. Um, and so the early censors of film, you know, there were, there were rules, for instance. In early films, you guys might have noticed, if you watch films from the 1930s and 40s, that you rarely ever see any a man and a woman in a bed at the same time you early you know the 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 thin man series you've got a married couple they have a great marriage obviously off off scene they're having sex but that's not the topic of the film but yeah. they sleep in separate twin beds and this persists all the way through the 70s right with the mary tyler or dick van dyke show mary tyler moore and dick van dyke started in that show and they they'd go to their bedroom and and then the brady bunch look at that after the sexual revolution the Brady's are shown in, in the same bed at the same time. Okay. You know what I mean? And that's new. That's kind of a new thing. And if you go back and look at depictions of romantic relationships in, in, in 40s and 50s films, some people note, might notice that if a man and a woman are kissing on a bed, they're not allowed to make out. They kiss, but then they stop kissing. Uh, and the man's foot is always on the floor. Huh. So y'all go go look at old films that have scenes of people in them um, huh. that become romantic. And then I, I can't talk about this topic without talking about Hitchcock because the censors determined that you could not show a man and a woman kissing and forget about homosexual relationships. That's not going to happen. Right. Um, yeah, that was completely off. You know, they're not right. showing it. Um, but, but, you know, during Hitch's time, the censors said that you could not have two people kissing for longer than I don't even remember what the censorship time was. It, you yeah. know, it might be less than half a second. You know what I mean? It might be one second. So this is what Hitch did to get around the censors. If you go back and watch a film like Notorious with uh, uh, Bergman and um, Cary Grant, uh, they fall in love in that film and they do a lot of kissing. But what Hitch did is he, he blocked the scenes so that they would, he interspliced dialogue with their making out. So they uh, would put their lips together and then they would separate and she would say something and then he would kiss her again and then he would pull off and, and say something and then she would kiss him again. And it would go okay. on for a regular makeout session, but they're okay. talking the whole time. So the censors could never nail them for kissing too long, right? Okay. And so that was how our Victorian attitudes about what was allowed to be seen on film and what was not allowed to be seen on film. And then you can see that what filmmakers are doing is they're pushing the envelope. And as culture develops, people are becoming more and more comfortable with the idea of depicting sexuality in film. Uh, and of course, because artists are groundbreakers, what do they want to do? They yeah, want to push it. the envelope. They want to break the rules. They want to step over lines to, to shock people and to get them to look at the world different. I mean, artists are going to art, you know what I mean? And so it's, 
not it's not surprising to me that we would have an explosion in, in pornography at the same time that we would have artists changing what is acceptable to be viewed in public. And even as you mentioned, you know, the, the pornography industry exists for a long time. It's first in writing, right. then it's in imagery. Then when the camera comes along, it's in photography. So you get dirty magazines, right? right. These underground that get passed around. This segues into, I can imagine this must have exploded during the time of bootlegging that, that, while while people are having speakeasies where where things are going on that are illegal and underground and not to be right not to be seen and notice that part of the attraction to it is that it is forbidden right yep yep and, and so i, I imagine okay. i imagine too that that was kind of the way pornography fell world for the ancient greeks and for the ancient romans but notice that that kind of depiction of sexuality and even that behavior would have been reserved to the elite. Does that Got make it. sense? Yes. They're the ones who can afford to commission an artist to do that. Right? Somebody's got to do it and they got to be good at it. So porn is going to be so-called, it wouldn't have been called that then, but that's what it is. We recognize that's what it is. Would have been reserved for a very, very narrow slice of the population. And then notice that two things happen. You have the invention of writing, which democratizes the word, right? Literacy explodes. And when literacy explodes, all of our aristocratic forms in the West government begin to fall. They haven't all fallen. Right. But it's not a surprise to me that the development of writing accelerates the demise of the feudal and the tribal order, top-down order, and democracy is birthed out of writing. Because now the official truth is no longer the province of the elite alone. Okay. So like you noticed during the revolution, what was, what was Benjamin Franklin? He was a printer. Exactly. Common sense, common sense, which was the very first call revolution was by a printer. Why? Because he possesses the mechanical means to duplicate the word and disseminate it through non-official means which is what the internet has been for a long time. And you can see why the elites are fighting to control the internet because information has exploded. So it's, it shouldn't be a surprise to anybody that the explosion of democracy, which most people would say is a very positive development, would have a parallel explosion of the ubiquity of porn in our culture because that belongs to the same underground that now is coming to the surface, right? Right. And so, you know, it used to be that porn was this forbidden thing, and then it becomes more and more available, and we more theaters are devoted to it. It's like the oh yeah, they show movie. Well, I don't know what kind of movies they show in there, right? Right. Um, and then in the in the 1960s and I think the 70s, um, you've got the development of the um, shoot. There used to be this. Uh, franchise that sold walnut bowls among other things you know they it might be, be a diner they'd have candy they had a little shop and they they advertised walnut bowls and i remember these they went out of business in the 70s but in the early 80s i started noticing that every one of those defunct little businesses was at a an exit out in the middle of nowhere on a highway and behind there would be this building that didn't have a sign on it. And that was like the porn place. That was where you went and got your pornographic magazines. That's where, right. 
you could the truckers would stop there you know what i mean and they were always on the outskirts of town so yeah the acceleration comes uh in the in the 60s and, and especially the 70s as a result of the sexual revolution uh, at the end of the 60s right um and and a new sort of attitude about um you know about everything that it, when it comes to sexuality um, and marriage and divorce. You'll notice if you if you study the law that the idea of alimony and even palimony is a 1970s development. Um, uh, Lee Marvin, for instance, was in a long-term relationship with a woman out in California for 20, 25 years, and then he, he they split up. She was the first one to successfully argue in court that she deserved the same kind of support from him that a married woman would. Hmm. Uh, um, and she won, and that changed the laws all over the country. Um, at the same time, you start to see that porn becomes too, it starts to come out of the shadows in, in increments. It's secret and illegal at first, then it's illegal and not so secret. Um, magazines start to proliferate, proliferate, but notice how it's consumed. You have to order them. They're, they're through the mail. Um, they come in brown paper, you know, sacks that are, that are uh, not labeled. Um, and then, uh, of course, film is accelerating, um, it in, in culture, what's you know, sexual revolution changes what is acceptable to be shown on film. And then you get the famous hustler case in the 1970s regarding pornography itself with the famous Supreme court decision that, you know, um, it is a matter of free speech and if people, Mm -hmm. if adults want to consume it, it's, it's allowed, Right. right. Where before that. You know, uh, the question was asked, you know, what, what is pornographic? And, and I think one of the Supreme Court justices can't remember the name. The answer was, well, I don't know, but I, I know it when I see it. I've heard right? that. Yeah, I've heard that quote. Right. And so and once the, the Hustler case um, happens, um, it definitely becomes something that it's like, OK, you know, it's it's here. And then you start to see Playboy magazine, Hustler magazine, Penthouse magazines appearing behind the counter at stores right there being sections um once the vhs is developed after laserdisc laserdisc was the first one um and then beta and then vhs might need to help me out with that one laserdisc anyway yeah laser laserdisc they they looked like albums they were his albums Uh, and they were they were yeah and bait and bait far better than vhs tape but the reason vhs the norm is because it's much more cheaply made. The quality's worse, but it's e- uh, easier to duplicate, right? Interesting. I never so, knew that. Yeah. So, so now you're going to beginning of the death of, of theaters, right? People aren't going to have to pee wee Herman it up and go to a go to a um, a theater with a bunch of other degenerates in long trench coats and and you know sort of try to disguise their identities as they're walking in. Right. Because now you can you can go to a you can go to a video store and there's a there's a back room behind a curtain and you have to be 21 years old or older to get in there, and all you got to worry about is whether your neighbor Marge is looking when you slip through the curtain and then when you come out. Um, so there's still that know. there's still that level though of like anonymity. Oh, absolutely. Our, you have our, to go the, out in public. You got to go out and kind of work our, for it. Right. Our prudishness persists, um, but in the to the internet all gone i talked to i talked to my son about this and he's you know closer to your age right and he said that's cool that you're doing that interview and i just got to tell you from my generation it's really hard to avoid 
Like right. it's a thing. It's a problem. It's a problem for a lot of people. And we didn't have an extensive conversation, but I was like, thanks. You know what I mean? Thanks for telling me that because there's, you know, being my age and being a college professor, there's only, you know, I'm comfortable being kids in my class, but, but they're not always comfortable sharing with me. Totally. Right? Um, totally. You know, what their experience is or what their comfort level is. So, and I'm sensitive to that and I respect it. Um, so I think, I think all of this, we, the, the time we live in now, which is something that you're devoted to examining and, and unpacking and, and talking about, um, has led to a certain kind of, you know, for lack of a better term, a, a, a perverted view of sexuality, which has invaded the culture. And it's, ev- I mean, it's everywhere. Yeah. Um, and, and I do think that it is related to our, our technological disorientation. And so one of the things I wanted to mention was uh, one of my mentors, the founders of the University of Dallas, were Dr. Louise and Donald Cowan. He was a physicist, and he wrote a book in the 1980s, latter half of the 1980s, I, I want to say maybe 80, no, early, early 80s, maybe uh, 83, 84, um, called Unbinding Prometheus, the thesis of which was um, that a lot of Western culture can be read through the lens of the Promethean myth, where Prometheus, the Titan, steals the divine fire and gives it to humans so that they can, but he also teaches them how to sacrifice to the gods. He also tells them that we're going to die. And uh, he gives us our technological imagination. One of the one of the coolest things that Dr. Donald pointed out, and I'm, there are mentors, my, mine and my wife, so I knew them personally, yeah. Um, and we had conversations about this was that the if you if you look at our technological um, inventions throughout history, you'll notice that up until the end of the uh, uh, Industrial Revolution, they are imitations of the human musculoskeletal system. So all of our inventions look like what they are. A bulldozer looks like a man who could push that much dirt. A crane looks like a giant that could pick up that much weight. But the scientific revolution that happens at the dawn of the 20th, the invention of the, of the camera, a camera does not really look like the human eye, even though it duplicates what the human eye does. And traces its roots far much farther back. My cat just jumped up on my desk. It's okay. <laughs> Love you, Ash. Got to go. Um, yeah. Um, so, so when we get to the innovations in technology that we see in the computer age, what you notice is that these are extensions of our nervous system. What we can see, what we can hear, what we can um, smell, what we can touch. Of course, smell, touch, and, and um, taste Taste hasn't been achieved yet, has it? Have you ever heard of smell-o-vision? You know what? I think I have, actually. Yeah, that was, something, that was something that just came, you know, in the late 70s. Yeah, late 70s, somebody tried to make a film where you got to actually smell what the characters on the film were smelling. And, it, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an absurd idea. They were idea. going through, like, roses or something. It wasn't like Right, a... but, but you see, it's a, precur- it's a precursor to the Internet age. Right. Um, and so... I think I think a lot of it has to do with our relationship to technology and how it transforms our relationship to reality, and that in turn forms our understanding of ourselves, 
where and when we are. Um, so in broad strokes, I could give your audience sort of a hop, skip, and a jump. For instance, you know, before the domestication of the animal and the seed, the dominant way of tribal life in the prehistoric world is uh, hunter-gatherer, which puts you completely at the mercy of the elements. Um, then there's the of fire, which stabilizes our ability to defend off the, the vagaries of the weather, right? right. Um, it changes how much we have to move. It allows us to be able to live in climates that are colder. With the domestication of the animal and the seed, hunter gather, hunting and gathering dies out almost everywhere in the world. And I've told my students this. It's not because the farmers decided that they were going to get rid of the hunter-gatherers. It was because the women who were the hunter-gatherers said to their husbands, learn how to do that. Mm. Learn how to do that. It's a better way of living. Do you see what I mean? I don't have to yeah, move all the time. I, it, it's, you can create more food than you need. Notice what happens when you can do that. Trade becomes a substitute for war. You're not constantly at war with other tribes over, over resources that are scarce. And so it has a positive effect, it has negative effects, if, if you if you find um, With the advent of writing, for instance, our relationship to time completely changes. Before the invention of writing, every culture saw time as cyclical, as seasonal, right? Which makes total sense. Even when they were farming communities, it makes sense that time goes in a circle. Once writing is invented, linear time is invented almost immediately. The idea that lint, that time goes from the past through a present to a future, which is kind of the way we think of it. Um, the ancient Greek word for future um, and behind is the same word. And that's because the Greeks thought of themselves as standing in a river of time that flowed around them. What you can't see is what's coming. It's behind you. But we think of the past as behind us because we think of ourselves as moving through from okay. the past. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, what difference, what di difference does this make? Well, very shortly after the invention of writing, which I mentioned, causes the democratization of the word and completely begins to change our societal organization and our political organization from always aristocratic and top down to democratic. Right. That's a good thing. Um, and then around the time of Shakespeare, Descartes uh, develops analytical ge geometry. And I can't overstate how important this is for the modern world and he invents the xy axis and all of a sudden maps become accurate mm. before that the way you the way columbus's cartographer which didn't exist until the xy axis the way the map maker worked was he stood on the deck of a ship and he drew the shape of the shoreline that they were sailing past that's why maps before Shakespeare's time are so ridiculously inaccurate. But after the invention of the XY axis, this is amazing to me. When we took our first photo of the globe from space, the maps that we had of the earth were absolutely accurate. They already were. And that was because of analytical geometry, not because technology had allowed us to see that we were right. Now, what difference, what, what relationship does this have to have to pornography? Okay. In my mind, the invention of the map, and you'll know this from your experience, and I know it from my experience because I belong to both. 
there's a difference between existing habitat landscape, moving through a landscape, right? And existing in a map. So if you think about your smart technology works, nobody knows anybody's phone number anymore because they don't need to. <laughs> and nobody knows how to get anywhere. Right? Oh, my gosh. So I'll, I'll tell you really quickly. You... I think I was telling you, great, uh, Dr. Boris, my phone broke. And yeah. I literally had to do the old school. I, I took my iPad with me. I was driving somewhere. And I did screenshots of the directions. Uh, so I almost like I and sorry to interrupt, but it's like I went back like 10 years and uh, it was so funny. We we went and saw uh, my nephew's birthday party yesterday at my sister's house. And I was like trying to remember. I'm like, OK, I know like generally where she lives. Yeah. But like I need to know like where to turn, like what exit to take. And like you're saying, it's like that. I have a few numbers that are in my head. But besides that. Oh, yeah. Yo, I'd be lost. Yeah. I'd, and it, it's amazing to me because when I was young, we didn't have all this technology to help us get around. So you had to, you had to learn and yeah. know. I have right. no sense. I have no innate sense of direction. I, I, I don't know. I got to look at the sun. I got to, and if it's noon, forget it. I can't tell. I have to remind myself which way is north and orient myself. Um, and so I can't imagine what it's like depending always on your smartphone directions because like, I don't, you know, so when people used to ask me for directions, I direct people by landmarks, not right. by north, south, east, west. I'm right. a left, take a left, take a right guy, go this way. When you see, when you see the billboard that says, remember, you know, like if you lived here, you'd already be home. Then it's the exit after that one. I don't know what exit number it is. You know what I mean? Right. But I know yeah. what it looks like. Um, and so that's much closer to living inside a landscape than it is living inside a map. So there's a difference between habitating a place and being trapped in a location. And I think this explains a, a kind of distorted relationship. Like people who live in highly populated urban areas live there because there is something there, not in the landscape, right, but in the market that attracts them there. So their relationship to the place is not the same as it is in a place like Arkansas where people farm the land. Does that make sense? Yep. So, and we, we don't all live at the same time. Uh, we have this idea of progress that, you know, technology, we get this technology and then it changes everybody at the same time. It's not true. Do you see what I mean? We're, we're bifurcated all over the place. But I think it's important to understand that what once we have the XY axis, our relationship, first of all, we immediately conquer the globe, right? All of that happens around the, it's the great age of exploration, right? And analytical geometry makes our maps accurate. There's no place we can't get to or can go. And all of a sudden we, we shift from living inside a landscape to imposing our will upon reality through the map mm. where and so we, we, we begin to see an extended part of our, our population, especially in the first world, who um, are not pinned to a place. They are, and, and they routinely violate what Aristotle called the, the principle of non-contradiction, which means that two people can't be in the same place at the same time, and one person can't be in two different places at the same time. And it's important to think of that violation because two things happen. 
One, with your smartphone, you routinely violate. You're always in two places at one time. Sure. Always, because you're on your phone, but you're walking. Have you seen those films on YouTube of people walking through the mall, looking at their phone and falling into a fountain? Because they're just not aware of their surroundings. I watch surfing the web. (laughs) Right, exactly. And they're not aware of their surroundings. And we have all these advertisements on the radio and on on television. Um, And it's interesting because the effect of radio on our brains is not the same as the visual, right? And so when we're – radios are perfectly acceptable things to have in your car, and they don't hamper your ability to operate your vehicle and listen to that at the same time. Sure. So apparently your brain can separate what it's looking at from what it's hearing, but it can't separate it when it's a moving image, like in a smartphone or on, you know, or on a screen. We, we're not able, because it, it involves our, the, the king of the senses, the eyes. Sure. Um, and so you can't, you can't do distracted driving, for instance. So we know there's a difference um, that this technology has on our brains, but it changes the way that we relate to everything. Um, it is a, it, you know, to think about the way the movie camera changes the way we can see things and television too, right? Accelerated all of this. Cause now all of a sudden I can see your, your viewers are going to see a recording of this, right? Mm-hmm. But you are all the way, I don't know how many, a thousand, 1200 miles away. And yeah, in real Colorado, time, you're in Arkansas. Yeah. In, yeah. in real time, we're having, we're having, a conversation which is allowed by this great technology that that allows us to do it um but at the same time we're not in the same place right it's an it's an artificial approximation of the same place and the screen is you know my eyes my brain is adjusting the image of you that i'm looking at to make it three-dimensional but it's really not right it's an it's an artifice so i think these considerations are important to the consideration of not just the proliferation of pornography in in our culture um, and the changes that it's wrought. I don't think porn is, I think porn is the reflection, is a reflection of other things. Let me put it that way. Okay. It's not the driver of things. Does that make sense? Yeah, Um, it makes sense. So so I think one of the roots of it are these changes in technology. Um, this divorcing of us from a a location, or not a location, but a landscape, um, into a map. Wait, we live on a map. And we lit- literally, if you take a look at DFW Airport, DFW Airport, I think, is the first one in the world, which was a, the duplication of the map of, of itself, not the other way around. Okay. Because it was not, it was not, the building of it was not limited by the landscape at all. It was a completely flat piece of ground. It was a grid. It already had its own X, X, Y axis. So the very first time I drove into to DFW, I was totally disoriented because I didn't realize I was driving in a map. I don't know if you've ever been there, but this is the way it works. If you come in the southern entrance, you either come in the northern or the southern entrance, depending on what airline you're flying in or out of. Okay? Because they're stacked side by side on the left and on the right. Okay? So if you're on America, you're on a flight on American, it's like, oh, come in the north entrance because Americans on that side. You can't get from one side to the other. The only way you can do it is by driving all from the south all the way to the north. Then there's a special exit that allows you to make a U-turn to get back in because you don't take the wrong, the wrong turn. Side. Exactly. And it takes <laughs> a long time. 
But like the first time I was trying to pick somebody at that airport, every single terminal looks exactly the same. The only thing that's different is the signage. Got it. And so I missed my terminal and I had to go to the next one. And then I realized I can't turn around. I've got to go all the way down, come all the way back and then come back in. Does, does that make sense? Yeah. Just for the because, audience, DFW is Dallas, Fort Worth and Texas, correct? Air, yeah. Airport. And, and, you know, the very first schematic map that was ever developed was for the Paris Underground, and it's still used today, where the map does not resemble the landscape of Paris at all. So the first time I got on the Paris Metro, when I was studying in Europe, um, we looked at the map and it said that we needed to go from this green station that we were in, a green triangle, we wanted to go to the Eiffel Tower, right? And the line from the, from the triangle to the yellow circle where the Eiffel Tower was, was straight, and it was about that long. So we're like, oh, this is going to be five minutes. We're real close to the Eiffel Tower. It wasn't. It was like 40 minutes. And there were curves in it. And I was like, the map doesn't even look like the landscape anymore. It's a, schemat it, it's a schematic. It's like reading the schematic for the electronics in your car engine underneath the hood. It doesn't right. resemble the way the wires actually travel. It shows you what connects to, to something else. So that's, that's what I mean by disorientation. And I think that one of the things that has happened to us is that we have accelerated a distorted view okay and so if i can give you another example take a look at body aesthetics right um fat in the female form right. beauty right. right uh the worship of youth yeah that, right that 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 has accelerated a kind of 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 um distorted view of what we you know what we what human beings are supposed to even look like. So if you take a look, for instance, that I have a question on that, but I'll let you go, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. Well, that kind of made me think about just how um, I'll just kind of tell a quick little story. When I was traveling through uh, South Carolina, I was getting an Uber ride. And one of the things I like to do some, for some reason, I don't know why this happened, but it seemed like every Uber driver on my trip across the country, uh, we would somehow talk about porn and, and things like that. I don't know. I just have a gift, I guess, for talking about porn with people. But right. it was a guy around my age, right? And we were going to this restaurant called Hyman's. That's a famous restaurant in Charleston. Um, really good food, by the way. And he's like, oh, that's like an interesting name for a restaurant. Right. Uh, like, oh, like, why? I don't, I don't know. And he's like, he said something to the effect of like, oh, like, well, that's like the, the part of the female body that I think like when someone's chair gets popped, Right. Like, that's like what it is, is the hymen. And unbeknownst to me, um, I was like, okay. And I'm like, why, how do you know that? Like, and he's like, oh, through porn. Just very casually. Yeah. Casually, just like, oh, yeah, like I picked that up through porn. And then I kind of put two to two together in my head. And I'm like, so you're watching porn of somebody's cherry getting popped, which to me kind of sounds like that would be somebody potentially like in high school or college. Like or a younger, actually, or yeah, younger, or younger, or yeah. younger, right? And so I think that kind of blends in a little bit to what you're saying is like this, um, this youth, this like this, I, this idea of youth, um, and what we've seen porn like today, um, and like how porn's proliferated. It, it seems like the the girls get younger and younger, uh, which you know just gives me shivers thinking about. Yeah, that, you know, it's just really sad to think about. Um, well, that, and, it, you know, and it does 
it does go, you know, it, it goes to much larger, it seems to me, philosophical, uh, philosophical questions. Um, and I think it's a reflection of, you know, as we've become more and more adept at fighting disease. I'm a cancer survivor. When I was a kid, we called it the C word because mm. if, if you got it, you were going to die. Mm. And then, and then, and then in, in the, in the eighties, we, my generation, Gen X got to go through it again with AIDS. If you got right. it, you were going to die. The mechanism is for it. It's mainly sex and intravenous drug use, right? right? That's the way human beings get it, uh, generally speaking. I mean, rarely blood transfusion. You know, you had cases like that, too. And at the same time, look at the slasher movie. The slasher movie from the 60s and the 70s and then the advent of AIDS. At the, at the very beginning of the 80s, right when AIDS started to be a thing, I was in high school, right? And there is an explosion of slasher movies that are morality plays where what happens to teens who go off in the woods and have sex? They get murdered. They get murdered, right? And so you've got that. It's almost like it's the punishment for the sexual revolution that happened in the late 60s and, and, and ramp it through the culture in the, 19, in the 1970s. And then all of a sudden, the 80s, it's like, you know, um. And so you see it a reflection of it in, in film, right? The morality of sexuality. All of a sudden, it's not it's not this it's not this. You're either a pornographic movie or you're not going to depict it at all. Now we have a blending of the two, but then it's coupled with murder, you know, and that's never gone away, right? Uh, and I think these are all connected. But the other thing that has happened, you take a look at the difference in the way of uh, supermodel Twiggy. And you, you've seen this before. Have you seen, the, you know, Victoria's Secret for a long time persisted with the Barbie image of, of the female form, right? But that was the rarity. You watch fashion shows through the 2000s and the 10s to the 20s. Right. And models, models are clothes hangers, right? Now, exactly. I'm, I'm a philosophy guy and I'm a lit guy and I'm a culture guy. And I'm like, look at that. So in the 19th century, there's an author that invents this story called Peter Pan, and it's about a boy that never wants to grow up. Well, what is that? What is that not wanting to grow up? Well, it's really fear of death. Right. Right? And so our worship, our worship of, and so, so the ampleness of the female form is associated with fertility, is associated with bodily life, biological life, and of course the mechanism of death is what? biological and so there's a turn against the very idea of the of the human body the human body is the mechanism of death so if we can if we can take it over if we can mechanize it if we can cure it and so you get at the same time you get this work in the culture as we've been been capable of defeating cancer and living longer and longer right Notice what happens, for instance, in Hollywood culture. Are women allowed to get old? No. They are not. Are men? Yes. Yes, because the aesthetics for male beauty has never really changed. None of this technological has, has changed anything about the way men are supposed, are supposed to be depicted one way or the other. 
You can be fat, you can be bald, you can be old, you can be wrinkly, you can be whatever. But a woman? Right. Absolutely not. She's going to lose her career if she loses her looks. Uh, double standard for sure. Um, and then, but, but now we're going to talk about the distortion that that creates. So right. if, if the only way you can stay viable in your business for another 10 years is to get plastic surgery, well, there's only a certain number of medical schools that specialize in teaching how to do plastic surgery. There's only a limited number of experts who are developing the technique that they're teaching to their students. And so you get a really, really small pool of people that are doing to the human face the same things. And so no wonder these women that have too much plastic surgery and now men all end up looking like a combination of a fish and a cat. Right. Completely distorted. And what this has led to, I mean, I, my theory is that, that some of these people, I, I don't think Madonna at this point actually knows what she looks like. Mm. I, don't, I don't think she sees her face in the mirror when she looks in the mirror. She sees an image of what her brain is telling her that face must look like. Um, and I think that pornography has tracked along this too. Like when you've, when you've broken a barrier and you've taken what was formerly obscene and you've shown it, well, then the barrier just moved, didn't it? Right. And once it's moved, in order for somebody to be even edgier, they've got to go farther than the last thing. And so your comment about the name of the restaurant and your Uber driver. Right. It's inevitable. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. That 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 we would we would move it. So so now and ever since Peter Pan, this is my my buddy Kale and I. We both went to LSU at the same time, and we talked about the invention of the child as a person introduces a very dangerous notion into the world, and it's led to our worship, not just our worship of youth, but our um, absolute terror of death to the point where we we want women to look like you know prepubescent boys right you know what i mean they, mm -hmm. if they're clothes hangers they're not even you know you mentioned you mentioned in your i think in your intro we were talking about you know the commodification of sex but this is the commodification and and complete objectification of the female form which i think is is essentially what pornography is is participating in accidentally right. you know what i mean um and so i think it it is a an illustration of a kind of sickness that we suffer um that you can see in different ways all over culture um right. you know another way i see it is in did you notice that in the 1990s and early 2000s it was nothing but zombies like in movies that became yeah I mean, it was just like just like the slasher film explodes at the very beginning of the 80s and then peters out really quickly. Right. As we come to terms with things um, in the 90s. With the advent of genetics, DNA, right. Um, the 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 all of a sudden we're just beset with walkers all over the place. It's it's you know what I mean? It's I like that. Undead. Right. And once and the cell phone comes out. Yeah. Yeah. And I asked myself in the early aughts, I said, what is this fascination we have with the undead? And then I realized what it was. It wasn't fear of death that is depicted in the apocalypse movies. It's the fear of immortality. 
so that when we see immortality, we have to destroy it. And the reason is, and I don't know if we're getting close to time here, the reason is, is because if immortality is true, then it actually matters what I do every moment. Mm. But if it's not true, then it doesn't. I'm the right. God of my own domain. Does that make mm. sense? I can do right. anything I want. Um, and my, my linkage to pornography is that pornography belongs to that world of libertarianism to the extent that anybody, any consenting adult, any can do anything they want, so long as they're not harming, right? But we keep moving the boundary for what harm is. Yeah. And if at the same time we turn children into little adults, well, then you get Nambliss fighting in, in law courts to say it shouldn't be illegal for adults and children to have sex. Right? I think there was something in France, right? I don't know what, um, maybe it was in the 60s or 70s. I think I heard a podcast on it or something where it was uh, this author, this writer that was pushing in French courts, you know, the idea of having sex with children and that being totally fine. Oh, it was me. It was Michel Foucault. It and, was Foucault. Okay. Yeah, it was Michel Foucault. And, and here's the thing about Foucault. You know, he's all the rage right now because uh, all of our cultural um, on the left anyway, are rooted in Marxism and in, in Foucauldianism. Um, and his theory about it was that every, every societal uh, norm is, is really just a way to imprison people. So the only way that you can be free is to break every rule there is. And he did that personally in his life. Speaking of AIDS, that's how he died, because he frequented the, the, the baths in, in California, um, because that's what he preferred. And he ended up contracting AIDS and he ended up dying from it. Um, but what people don't know about him in his personal life is that when he lived in Morocco, he would routinely pay old boys to meet him at midnight in a cemetery and violate them. Mm. Um, and then he was agitating in France to abolish any of the consent laws that, that were in France because he said that, that it, it should be totally normalized. So he's at the leading edge of this fight that we have, speaking of truth over values and right. pornography participates in deadening as does as does you know pornographic violence in deadening our um our for for decency the very idea of decency these days in culture is is kind of quaint isn't it yeah and i mean just to touch on that that's a great thing point that you brought up just like the the desensitization desensitization of yeah. you said sexual violence i mean I, I think i've brought it up in the podcast before and i think we've talked about it but um i listened to this great podcast one time and it was by uh, gail dines i think she she might she might be a doctor as well over in britain uh, she's more on the, on the feminist spectrum but brings up incredible mm -hmm. points about porn and and how it's uh, really just for the male gaze, uh, you know, all the viewpoints are right. from the male. And maybe that kind of goes into film as well, like how it's shot. It's shot for the male audience, right, from the male's point of mm -hmm. view. But kind of what she talks about is uh, how, like, the top searched types of porn typically are have to do with, like, gagging, choking. Uh, you know, typically it, it's pretty common for like the, the woman to be crying for mascara to be running down her face. Right. And when, when you think about that, when you think about like healthy sex, um, healthy sex, um, like the way that, you know, God designed it, 
it's not somebody crying um, mascara down their face. It's probably right. somebody smiling, somebody that's in pleasure, that feels like they're safe, that feels like um, their partner loves them. Uh, right. And then we see the exact opposite with porn to where it's almost like this business transaction. Um, the woman's always just ready to go to do whatever the man wants um, on their knees, you know, things like that. And I thought I'd right. just bring that up. You know, that, I think that was a, a huge turning point for me um, when I started to realize that, you know, that the kind of the content I was consuming was really this desensitized, a lot of it sexual violence. Or like you've kind of talked about throughout this talk, like a taboo type item uh, where it could be uh, sex with like a mother-in-law or a sister-in-law. Right. Um, you know, someone that's related to you, um, somebody that. You or know, steps. Yes, yeah, steps, um, you know, like teacher, student, um, you know, nurse, patient, you know, all these like really like doctor. When you think about like the Hippocratic Oath and like, you know, this uh, the doctor to do no harm. And then you have these breaking of these, I would say kind of like you were talking about, like when we push that goalpost of uh, like what harm is and like what that right. is, it, it breaks, it kind of blurs all those lines that have been set up throughout time of um, decency, of authority, of um, respect. Uh, and it's, it, it seems like it breaks that down all, I feel like in the goal to make more money because I think that's really where we're at with technology is the commodification of whatever is under the sun. So it could be the yeah. commodification of, of gambling, the commodification of having conversations like we are in, in some ways, some respects, right? Yeah. Uh, and, but then this is like the commodification of sex uh, to where you were kind of talking about. There's no more, it's all anonymous now. Well, think about this. I love your, your use of the term transaction, okay? What it, what it really is is it's a move to make all of our exchanges, human-to-human -human exchanges, transactional, okay? So when you live in a transactional society, if I have a surplus of money in my pocket and you have a surplus of bread in your store and I'm hungry and I need some bread, then I walk in and I grab a loaf off the thing and I bring it up and the clerk rings it up. I hand him money and he hands me the bread and then the relationship is over. It makes all relationships um, transactional. And as I was saying, when you have transactional relationships, they're over when they're completed. Uh, one of the things that Marxists don't recognize, and I do think this is part and parcel of a, a kind of power grab. You were talking about making money off of everything. Sure. Um, when you, when you persuade people that breaking taboos is a liberating thing, mm. right? At the same time, you're breaking down barriers to the point where, where nothing is off limits. Nothing is obscene. Nothing can't be done. Right. Um, there is no such thing as decency anymore. Uh, when I was in grad school, um, we were in a Marxist materialist class reading novels together and, you know, my buddy Kale and I were, were both kind of um, flabbergasted that our professor had never heard of the gift economy. And this is the gift economy is one where a bond is created through a kind of not a transaction, but an exchange. And so in the giving of a gift, I create a bond with you. You just thanked me for my time a few minutes ago. It's a gift, right? 
So I expect that our relationship will persist after this session is over. Right. Uh, because gifts have been exchanged here, right? Just by by being together and talking about things of value and and views that we share, uh, things that we think are important. That's a that's a gift, right. um, and it can't really be reciprocated in kind. It's just something that has no it has no assignable value, right? And so, yeah, if you think about it, in all the ways that human beings can relate to each other, we can have contracts. We can trade, right, in a market. We can buy things from each other. Um, I could perform a service for you that you then give me something of value in return for. Right. All of those relationships are, by their nature, temporary, right? Now, let's think about the relationships that persist through exchanges. And that's why I mentioned marriage. In marriage, if you think about it, marriage is the only human relationship that includes all of those exchanges. There is a, you're not unless you get married publicly. There have to be witnesses that see that you have both consented in front of witnesses to being married, correct? Right. There is a legal document that is recorded that you are married, right? After you are married, you share in the benefits and all of the sufferings that go along with the relationship, right? Right. Um, so you've got a contract. Oh, look at this. Culturally, in all cultures, there is an exchange of money, right? Now, in our culture, the exchange of money between the bride's family and the groom's family is in the form of the wedding reception itself. Right. The right. bride's family, the bride's father is supposed to pay for the, the reception not the groom, right? And there are, there are some misogynist reasons for this. There are other reasons for it. But let's take a look at those taboo relationships too, the ones where on the internet and in pornography, we are increasingly saying are no longer sacred, right? So you're going to go from, it was, the, it was the, I didn't know the librarian was sexy porn until she took her glasses off and I caught her after hours in the library with right. her shirt unbuttoned. To it's my mother-in-law, to it's my stepmom, to it's my mom, right? Yeah. It's yeah. going to go from stepsister to sister, to right. daughter, right? To daughter. Yeah. Yeah. To which son. is insane. That's where about. that's where it's going to go. Why, why is that a taboo? Why is that sacred? Well, think about the relationship between brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters are knit together by the marital bond, which results in pregnancy. It's not a transaction. It's a gift. The man actually gives a portion of his body to the woman, and I want to get into this too, and she absconds with it like a thief and turns it into something new. Not something that he can predict, not something that he can even control. Right. This is this is what makes the, the, the female and the female body so dark and threatful, as, as Faulkner would call it. Because if you let men simply design society, right, they would simply replicate the order that they know, which is the map. And Faulkner says this in his novels. He said, if men were put in charge of, like, making the next generation, I would just make, I mean, look at me. I would just make little versions of myself. 
Every sure. one of my sons would just be a little version of myself. But when I, when I, when I actually commit myself in the gift giving that is the marital act of sex, my bride takes it and she does something mysterious with it that I can't control. That's what makes it so dangerous. And I've got a whole theory. We could do a whole nother podcast on all of this. Okay. But I do think that I do think that's what's being broken down sure. in pornography. I, I think that, that, and I think that leftist progressivism also has to break down the taboo relationships, has to ridicule them, has to uh, demonize them, because the competition is actually for, it's, it's not even money, it's power, it's control. Um, and of course, what's really being attacked is, is the family. Right. And if you the only way you can break down the family is if you can break down the marital bond. Um, you know, we've been convinced and I know you've been through this, Mac, and yeah. maybe you're a product of this of this paradigm for marriage. But sure. I heard when I was growing up and luckily I had a wise father. And my dad told me one time, he said, you know, we live in a world where people think that marriage is a 50 50 proposition you know the man's got to man's got to give 50 percent and the woman's got to give 50 percent otherwise the marriage is not going to make it and he said but it's not it's a hundred a hundred it's right. the man has to be a hundred percent committed to it and the woman has to be a hundred percent committed to it otherwise it won't work and i thought man that's true you know but in 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 the relationship that you use the word transaction to describe it's 50 50. Now watch what the Marxists do to the 50 50 exchange on in the money market, in the com commodities market. They say that every exchange between me and you, which is moneyed is exploitative because I have more power than you. And this is what Foucault said. Foucault said the way that they lord it over you is they convince you through discipline and punish, to participate in your own enslavement. Hmm. So, so at one and the same time, they tell you that every human relationship you have is transactional, transactional, and then they convince you that every relationship that's transactional is theft because somebody's exploiting somebody else. Hmm. In a culture where you've been told, well, as long as it's between two consenting adults, are you following me here? Yeah. None of this makes any sense. Right. To me, it's it's smoke and mirrors. It's a dog and pony show. It's a bait and switch. The whole thing is a bait and switch. And believe you me, I learned Marxism at the knees of people who actually believe in Marxism. And one of the things I pointed out to one of my professors about that situation was, that's funny. You guys really believe in Marxism until you sign the back of your paychecks and, and deposit them in the bank. <laughs> right. And then all of a sudden you're healthy capitalists. Because you believe exactly. that your service to the university is is worth a value that you're willing to trade for it. So I kind of, with the gift economy, we kind of introduced to this to this one of our professors the idea. And by the way, she was so gracious and so large-minded that she was like, I have never, ever even heard of that. And that is going to change the way I think. Hmm. It's really important. I, felt, I, I feel so lucky that I happened to go to LSU when I went to LSU because everybody was serious but they were also uh 
charity minded in the sense that they 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 didn't mind walking the halls with people that were absolutely diametrically opposed to them. It was great. It was a great time to be there. I don't know that it's true anymore. Right. But I wish I wish more of our universities were like that. But my but my point is, you see how all of this, all of it's related. Um, but I ultimately think that 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 the drive with pornography is is like I said, it's it's kind of a bait and switch. You know, you're going to be you're going to be seduced by the idea that you're allowed to do anything you want, while at the same time buying into the idea that every transaction is somehow theft, right? And then somebody asked me one time, they said, but you're a Christian. You, you believe, don't you, that it'll be like complete communism in, in heaven where everybody just shares with everybody else and nobody ever wants? And I said, it was funny, I stunned my friend because they didn't think I'd answer this way. I said, well, of course it is. I said, the reason that we can't have it here is because we're not perfect. Right. In a perfect world, that, that works. But we're not perfect. And therefore, you have a wrong theory of human being if you think that system's going to work here. Try it here, and you're going to run out of toilet paper. See you <laughs> in Venezuela. We, we did that, yeah, we did that back in the COVID era, the right. running out of toilet paper part. But notice, too, that in the COVID era, the whole yeah. thing, if you, if you, without being paranoid about it, right. a, a big portion of that was to see how I was shocked at the very beginning of it that so many Americans were willing to just go along, get along. Like, I, I was like, Really? Like, when did we stop being Americans? Where are the people who are going to stand up and say, this is, you know, so like people are wearing masks and I'm like, we're talking about a virus here. I just went to Walmart and picked up a jar of peanut butter and then realized it wasn't the kind I wanted and I put it back on the shelf. How many other people did that? Oh, it's not transferred by touch. It's only airborne. I was like, well, if it's a virus, wearing a mask is like peeing through a chain link fence and, and expecting the stream to be stopped by the chain link fence. It's a matter of scale. There's no way these things are working. Um, I was yeah, and the, yeah, and, and to pick your brain um, about that, um, like in regards to the topic with porn. I mean, I feel like that was kind of a shift to in relationships as well, to where mm-hmm. people uh, maybe that weren't in relationships weren't really seeking them. Uh, you know, people were inside a lot for a while um isolated from each other and then I, I i think like the whole being inside not getting outside not doing these typical activities that are healthy for humans sure did a lot of harm as well and probably increased the usage of porn oh ab- absolutely in fact let's let's just make an analogy to the difference in human behavior online as opposed to in person that'd be great people People are so much more willing to do things they would never do to somebody's face when they're online. They are so much more brutal. They are so much ruder. They are so much more willing to, you know, because they know that they don't have to risk anything. So if you put pornography online, now you've removed the risk. That's what I meant by, by talking about we porn. You know, but all it does is completely distort our relationships with our fellow travelers, with our fellow human beings. And then when we get in a situation where we have to deal with somebody flesh and blood, we can't do it anymore. I've asked succeeding generations of my students, I used to ask them this, well, I still do. Do you believe 
everything you read on the internet. And to this day, they still say no. And now I tell them, yes, you do. Right. Yes, you do. Because if you, if you Google something, first of all, you never go to page two. <laughs> Secondly, <laughs> if you, if you read it on Wikipedia, you just say, oh, okay, so that's what I, I didn't know that. Okay, that's what it is. Wikipedia page on William Faulkner and something's wrong, I know it. And you guys are exceedingly living in a world where you're being divorced from your own knowledge. In fact, Socrates said this about writing. He said, I worry about writing because it's going to cause human beings to lose their memory. Hmm. Well, I worry about the smartphone because it's, we're going to lose our humanity our association with our very own bodies, which I think is right up your ballywick, your alley, in this that, that porn is a reflection of the distorted relationship, not only that we have with each other, but that we have with our own bodies because of these devices. And what do these devices do? What did they do to your generation? They were little, they're, they're not phones, first of all. They're not phones. They are substitutes for every single kind of relationship that you can have on the planet. Hmm. Um, and that, that, that's what makes them creatively destructive. The, the whole idea that Apple had about the smartphone was to get rid of Microsoft, to get rid of the PC, and to change the way that you interacted with the Internet in order, you said, to get your money, which is true. Right. But also it's to control information. It's to, and, and to control information, as Newman famously said on Seinfeld, is to control everything, right? Right. And so, like, I teach film. One day I walked into my auditorium, and my, my VCR disc, DVD disc reader had been replaced by a smart screen, and I had no way to interface with the machine. I've mm. got 3,000 3, DVDs in my office. You know, how, how many streaming services can you go to to watch Hitchcock's um, Notorious? Right. Well, whichever one about four people on the planet decided that they would give you access to. <laughs> right. And right. This, this started back in the 1980s when Ted Turner bought the entire library. You know Turner Classics, the channel? Yep, yep. That, that started in the 80s when he bought the entire archives of a movie studio. One man. And then he started colorizing black and white films and was the exclusive arbiter of if they were going to be aired and or how they were going to be sold. So like I've been advising millennials and, and youngers, I was like, look, if you can put your hands on a DVD player or even a VHS player and start collecting things, at least then when the zombie apocalypse goes out, <laughs> right. goes when it happens – you'll have access to some of this really, really rich content without right. having to ask anybody permission. So, oh my gosh, it's wild that you said that. I was talking to my girlfriend about that the other day. Right. And, and if, 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 you know, who's the guy that owns Amazon? Uh, well, it was Bezos. That oh, that's, some... did he just sell it? Mm, I, think he st I think he retired or something, but... I was just going to say the extended edition, Blu-ray edition of Lord of the Rings is like gold to me. Yeah. That's like my golden treasure, you know, because I have it. It's mine. I can watch it whenever I want. Exactly. And um, it's going to become increasingly difficult. We all think of digitizing things as really, really great. 
But I, when I saw that smart screen, I walked into my dean's office and I said, this is a very bad idea. Because his attitude was, well, well, everything's available on streaming now, too. And I was like, no, it's not. Right. If they decide to disappear a film like Blazing Saddles because it is not woke, right, they'll right. disappear it. And that will be to the detriment of not the present, but the future. Um, so I have a question why for I, you. Huh? I have a question. Uh, maybe this can kind of tie in maybe the last topic that we wanted to discuss you know, before concluding. Uh, I think what we're kind of getting into is AI, right? We're, we're getting into this advancement in technology. Uh, you know, maybe for our last topic, uh, and again, appreciate just all your time. It's been fantastic. Sure. Oh, uh, what I kind of think about now, you're talking about the smartphone and you're talking about owning things. Now we're, we're moving in now to like to augmented reality. We're moving into Vision Pro. That just came out with Apple. You're now seeing, like, I think you were telling me there's videos of people walking around the mall with their smartphones. Now there's people walking around the streets with their goggles on, seeing augmented reality. And kind of talking about uh, transactions, objectification, Mm -hmm. it's almost like kind of this analogy you've been using, at least. And let me know if this tracks with um, kind of like what I'm thinking and if that tracks with you, but it's almost kind of like the physical relationships, the marriage, um, person to person. It's almost like that's like the DVD. That's like the VHS that you want to hold on to that has this rich content is like your actual relation, physical relationships with people. Um, and then with this topic that we're talking about, like with porn, it's like that physical relationship of, of sex, uh, healthy sex, you know, with your wife, you know, with your partner. Right. And I kind of feel like this, this this is maybe where we can kind of land the plane is uh, we're looking in the future with like AI and with, you know, Vision Pro augmented reality. It's almost like these relationships that these physical relationships that we've kind of based a whole human existence out of are going to be kind of like the DVD, the VHS as we move into this technological landscape that's more filled with artificial intelligence with augmented reality to where you can basically go wherever you want, um, be whoever you want, sleep with whoever you want. And now it's going to be transposed into these goggles. Just want to take, like, see what your take is on that. If you track with that. I think it does track well. It does track well with the the way I think. Um, And what I am thinking this is leading to. Um, And let me, let me, introduce into the conversation another analogy you know you go all the way back to ancient greece and to um the 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 of western philosophy right uh and it is a it is if you look at uh raphael's painting from from the time of michelangelo uh uh he has a famous painting that's on a wall in the vatican right outside of the sistine chapel and it's called school at athens and what he did is he anachronistically included all of the great pagan philosophers in one room, kind of like in a Greek temple setting. And right in the center is Plato, and he's gesturing toward the skies next to his student Aristotle, whose hand is gesturing toward the ground, Hmm. right? Now, Plato, of course, in the Republic, gives us the famous analogy of of the cape, right? Are you familiar with it? 
so in the in the cave analogy human reality is we are trapped in a cave we are prisoners there and we can only see the distorted shapes and images of the shadows and reflections of reality which are, are projected upon a wall before us and we can't see the projection behind us right and then one day somebody escapes from the cave and at first he dazzled so dazzled and blinded by the light of reality that he can't even look at it it's painful but this is socrates right but he persists and then he gets used to it gradually and he realizes that what he's been looking at before has been an illusion right and that these are people going to market they live in the real world they're doing their thing and and so he runs back down and he frees all of the other slaves and brings them up to the uh, you know to the top to the entrance of the cave and 99% of them run back to their chains because they prefer the image they prefer the illusion because it's too painful to real to deal with reality so to me that tracks with what you just said the more people they actually interact in the form of their form, which is physical, right? It's not merely intellectual. It's not merely spiritual. It is physical. And I'm going to remind you at the beginning, I told you I was Catholic. Right. The biggest scandal and the center of the Christian faith is that salvation can only come through death. That's a scandal. I call it the scandal of the body. It's the reason that Abraham's hand is stayed when he offers and is willing to sacrifice his own son Isaac to God. One, it does show his faith, but also it's like God reaches out and back and says, not this one. This one's not good enough to save mankind. So what is the use of human sacrifice? Don't right. do it. Right. And so when, when, we, you know, I w when I was a kid, I asked myself, I was like, why is it death? Why can't he just... Why can't he just erase the debt? He's got the ledger, you know what I mean, to borrow from C.S. Lewis. He's got the ledger. He could just erase the other side. And, you know, the explanation would be this. We committed, a, you know, the, 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 the error that we committed, the, the grave sin that we committed is so great that we can't fix it. So that's why I never liked the bracelets. I'm sorry if this is offensive to any of your Christian listeners. I never liked the bracelets. What, what would Jesus do? And the reason is because I know what Jesus would do. Jesus does the, the only thing that we can't do for ourselves. Right. And, and God, the great delegator, will not do anything himself that he can't let you do for him because that's how much he loves you. But you have to freely choose it. So I know that seems far afield of what we've been talking about. But it seems to me that every time technology allows to get to get that much closer to our, our physical reality, our spiritual reality, and our actual nature, the enemy that is going to throw up a substitute that's more convenient, that's going to make it seem to me that I'm more limited, uh, liberated, that I am a god unto myself, which I prefer, than a servant to a god that I can't control. And so I think all of the things that we've been talking about ultimately have not just a philosophical dimension to them, but a religious one, too. They're the sure. most important questions there are. So I want to compliment you on actually tackling a topic that puts people in, um, in touch with the most important questions, which is one of the reasons why I agreed to be on the show or the podcast. Yeah.
Well, yeah, I appreciate that. That was beautiful what you had to say too about uh, our connection with with a God. And I know if there's if there's listeners out there that you know aren't Christian, I think one thing that I've talked about in my podcast is one of the most important things, and I think it's a part of a twelve step. Well, like for Alcoholics Anonymous, I know there's a Porn Addicts Anonymous that uh, my brother mentioned in our last podcast. But the first like step that you do is to say that um, I don't have control of this situation. And right. to, to say like that, you know, that I, I have to give it up to something bigger than me, someone bigger than me. And I think that's like where like you're talking about the very core of it. These philosophical questions is you have to have something bigger than you in this um in this struggle you know if you're struggling with porn and, and getting it out of your life you have to be able to connect to something that's higher than yourself because like well, you were and, saying we're, we're imperfect people well and the other thing is too and i think you know this from experience you know we walk around with this attitude that you know as long as whatever we're doing is between consenting adults then then sex is okay as a action but have you ever met anybody that actually lives by that, that's actually happy? Because I haven't. Right. And if they or, are, it's yeah. it's very temporary. Sure. It's not it's not real. It's not real and they know it. Um and I, I'm always deeply saddened by it because I realize I understand why we can be seduced by the idea of easy access to things that give us so much pleasure. Right? Sure. Sure. But the lyric, for instance, and this is to lean on my other mentor, Dr. Louise Cowan, you know, the lyric is a movement, is an artistic movement of the soul that runs through anticipation to consummation to lamentation. And what the transactional relationship in sex seduces us into believing is that there's no lamentation after consummation. What makes consummation different from everything else is that it is entirely temporary entirely right and so keats says in ode on a grecian urn that the image of, of suspended anticipation is far greater than consummation because consummation always leads leaves a, a um a heart high sorrowful and cloyed with a burning forehead and a parching tongue like the result mm -hmm. of con right yeah but porn porn is consummation without anticipation and without lamentation it's 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 too right but what does the sadness come from the sadness actually comes from self-knowledge of the temporariness of this life and so what we do in the culture is we first of all we deny it and the you have to deny it by denying that reality is not created by you and then go back to technology people walking around with a reality that's created they think by themselves, but it's not. It's owned by whoever created it. Right. Right. Um, I mean, what did what did Orwell say in 1984? To control the present, you have to control the past. And ultimately, the only way you can control the past is if you can language. If you can take away words and take away things that I can think, you narrow the universe to the point where I become a slave, whoever's controlling that. And so porn masquerades as a liberation by offering you everything, but really it's just the island of love boys, okay. right? Um, from Pinocchio. Uh, I like that reference. You know, it's just like, 
you know, ha- have everything that you want right now and as and in as much as 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 you want it. But as you as as many of your listeners and, and viewers are going to know, um, access unbridled access to the things that we desire the most most in every single case is ruinous. In every single I can't there's no exception. There's no exception. So for me, it's kind of obvious. Um, and I don't get mad about it. I'm, I'm, nor am I bemused about it. I just, it saddens me, right? Which is why I like hearing that your, your golden possession is the extended version of the Lord of the Rings. Because if there's any author that I've read that understands this, right? It's, it's Tolkien, right? Oh um, my gosh. That's going to be another podcast if you want to. I would I've, love to do that. I've made, um, in some of my writings and my podcasts, I've talked about how, and you know, we can we can save this for another one, but how the Ring of Power to me kind of reminds me of like porn and like when you put it on, you turn invisible. Um, the way that it, it pulls you in to to put it well, on. Well, you 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 turn invisible, but you become visible to the all-seeing eye. And notice that Sauron's all-seeing eye is an attempt to approximate the all-seeing eye of God. Right, right. I think you mentioned that in our that truth series that you hosted. Yeah, prob- probably so. And I and and because I remember having this conversation recently and I, you know, I yeah. said, you know, what's the very last line of the Lord of the Rings? It's Samwise Gamgee saying, "Well, I'm home." Mm. That's the point. The point of all of it is the hobbit. The point of all of it, you know, you, you we live in an age where we say, "Oh, it's not the it's not the destination, it's the journey." No. It's the destination. What are we arguing about? We're arguing about what the destination is. Mm. What they're trying to convince you is that it's only the journey. And if they can convince you of that, then everything else follows from from their point of view. Oh, my gosh. Okay. That that might be a good place to end, I think. That was beautiful. Because I think that tied into something that you said earlier about uh, people that are basically the idea that we're going to live forever or like the belief in internal, the belief in uh, eternal life right. versus the opposite of that. And if you believe in inter- eternal life, you're going to, every moment matters. And yeah. if you don't, then it's, it's like you said, and I love that man, that's a great place to end is talking about the journey versus the destination. And if you have this destination in mind that you want to go this positive destination, you're going to live your day-to-day life differently. And that's going to affect, and I know that's affected my relationship with porn is I have a destination in mind for myself. Right. Where before when I struggled with porn, where I couldn't really um, grasp a great way to get it out of my life or to recover from it. I didn't really have a destination. And this is so yes. beautiful you said this because it really does make so much sense. And hopefully if you're listening, this kind of clicks with you as well. But if you don't have a destination, you don't have that compass, you're just going to kind of talking about the maps being in the map. You're just kind of lost. Like, and what better way well, to have, fill your time with something that's endless and filling you with pleasure? Well, well, not just that, but I think what it is, is it's a reaction to the idea that what we're doing is we're replacing eternal life, which is physical, with eternal life that is only spiritual. So AI is going to extend us farther and farther from our bodies 
what we're doing is we're incrementally destroying the human body and replacing it with only the brain. So you understand that the, that, that the human models of what immortality looks like. And C.S. Lewis, he nailed this in the third of his space trilogy called um, That Hideous Strength. What human manufactured immortality looks like is my brain replicated in a computer chip in the cloud that will persist forever without my body, which is to dehumanize myself to the point of disappearing me. And all of this is related. And that's why I talk about the fact that the scandal of Christ is that we believe in the resurrection of the body. Mm. And that's the thing that cannot be tolerated. So how do they attack it? By attacking it through the pleasures of the body. Man, we're almost going to sound smart by the end of this. Well, Dr. Boris, uh, I think uh, we've got some good topics cooking. I think that we could we could we could do uh, on another show if 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 you'd like to join again. Uh, I just yeah, I just want to conclude by just saying thank you so much. I was really looking forward to talking to you. I had a certain idea of how it would go, and this far exceeded any of my expectations. Uh, well, if if I had any worries, it was that your response would be something other than that. Um, and so I'm glad that I'm glad this is what you had hoped for. Um, I certainly, certainly enjoyed it and we'll be happy to come back and, and talk with you on any number of, any number of topics. Well, appreciate just, yeah, just everything you had to say. I hope, you know, the listeners, uh, you know, it, it, this is new. We're doing some interviews now on the show and, uh, you know, hopefully you guys love this as much as I did. Uh, and then Dr. Boris, uh, just to conclude, you know, where can people find you? Uh, you know, online, uh, maybe just plug in a few things that you're doing. Uh, so people yeah, can look um, more into you what can, you're doing. Yeah, you, you can find me on X. Um, I go under my own name on X. Uh, it's one of my little rogue rebellions against the anonymity of the Internet. Um, it is kind of my sign to let you know that I am speaking for myself, that I do believe what I believe. I will defend it. Uh, but if you call me out on something that I'm wrong about, I try to be really good about, you know, internalizing that and saying, you know what, you got me. Um, sorry about that, you know, um, because I want us to get back to a place where we're actually having conversations about ideas um, rather than, you know, uh, being so ridiculously and primitively tribal that we can't we can't have an exchange and disagree Um so, yeah, I'm on X. Um, I also have a Substack. Um, I've got a little store with some cool T-shirts on it called the, the, the Rogue Way on Bonfire. Um, I think I've made about $13 so far, so that's kind of cool. Uh, hey. Like I said, <laughs> a Substack. And then um, there, you can find old podcasts with me and my buddy Casey uh, on Podbean and that still exists and on uh, – we, we were on, uh, I think there's some of them are on YouTube, so you can okay. go back and look. That's a, that's a former Marine and a philosophy guy having conversations kind of like this, probably not as, as, as well narrowed, um, but a lot of fun. And okay. so, I, and, and Mac, I'll keep you posted on what I'm doing if I get some new stuff. 
Uh, a couple of my short stories were published during the COVID era. One's on West Trade Review. You guys can look for it there. Uh, very different than the conversation that we had here. Uh, another one is on Prometheus Rising, I think it's called, or Prometheus Dreaming. Okay. Uh, that one's called Dumb Dick Daily. I like it a lot. Uh, okay. The other the other one's called Joy Ellen. Uh, they're both set in the same town different, you know, with different people. Anyway, thank you. And uh, I guess I hope to see you guys next time. Great. Well, hey, everyone. Thanks for listening today. Dr. Boris, thank you again. And everybody, keep fighting the good fight. Talk to you later.